So we see Jesus comes down and is numbered with the transgressors. And what's his response? The mob of people who were watching him are, are jeering at him. And in Matthew and Mark, we're told that in this scene, that both criminals join in the mocking at first. Both criminals join in. Both of them join in jeering at Jesus at first. In Matthew and Mark, we're told that they both join in. And then here we're told in Luke that there's one who scorns Jesus and then the other one seems to change his mind. And I think that it's at this moment when he changes his mind. The mob and the crowd and everyone is jeering and mocking. The Jewish rulers who commanded it are screaming and mocking him. The people who are most comfortable and complacent the Jewish leaders, the ones who are most comfortable in their position with Rome and they're most comfortable in their authority and their power. They are comfortable in their synagogues and in their worship settings, in the temple structures. They are comfortable and happy where they are. And Jesus means displacement of all their comfort for the sake of surrender to him. In the sake of leveling of the playing field, they are comfortable in their power and their prestige and they mock him. It is truth for us that the people who are most comfortable and complacent in their religious affections, the people who are most comfortable and complacent in their religious affections will mock the radical nature of Jesus Christ. Will mock and jeer at it and want it gone. Anything that requires them to sacrifice, they will want it gone. So the mob is watching. The Jewish rulers are jeering. The soldiers are carrying it out. There is this massive evil going on around him. And there in verse 34, Jesus' response to this evil that is being perpetuated on him, this, this wickedness that's all around him at every level, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus proclaims, Lord, forgive them. Forgive them. And he's providing the way to forgive them right now. God in the face, Jesus in the face of people mocking and jeering and, and yelling at him and, and scorning him and literally killing him on the cross says, forgive them. And this is the same spirit that resides in you and in me. This is the same spirit we're told. If you have the spirit of Christ in you, then this is that spirit. You have this mind of Christ in Philippians, the mind of Christ that is in you, that you can live this way. You can forgive when people mock and jeer and scorn and, and try to crucify you. This is who you have inside you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think it's at this moment that the thief probably turns. Hearing that, being crucified next to Jesus, having to struggle for his every breath. I know that you've, you've heard you have to lift yourself from your legs to... To breathe because the way that they crucified you was in such a manner that your rib cage collapsed in to, to hinder you from being able to take a breath. 
So if you wanted to say something or you wanted to breathe, you had to push up on the nerve that was being, that was pierced through in your leg. You had to push up. And the idea was that it sent this shooting, stinging pain through your whole body. And you had to pull up with your arms. And then you had to try to expel as much breath as you could and then fall back down to take another one. And this was, this was a constant, incredibly painful process. And yet Jesus is doing that with these men. And this, this, uh, these, these, these criminals are so wicked that they're expending breath. They're expending energy to jeer and mock Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And one of them gets it. One of them goes, this guy is not like us. This guy is not like us. And he turns. And then we have the next thing here. One of the criminals who was hanged there, verse 39, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since... We are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There are two criminals, one that doesn't believe and one who does. Verse 40 there is an emphasis by Luke. It says, the other one, the other. Uh, <coughs> the, term, the term here being heteros or different. It could say the different one. So the one on the one side is jeering at him and then the different one responds this way. This is the one who is, according to Scripture, being drawn Right? What a, what a painful and glorious drawing. What a painful and glorious drawing. There's some, there's some things that we should take away theologically here. Um, one, look at how salvation works. It's in a moment. It's in a split second. This guy turns and says, your king, your you're Jesus. You're, you're a king and you have a kingdom and you're going to come into it. And I just, I'm recognizing that you're king and, and I deserve this. So he recognizes his own sinfulness. He recognizes that Jesus is king and he goes, remember me. Everything hinges on him being remembered by this king. Everything hinges on this king's decision to remember it. So he says, remember me. Theologically, this is, there's no hoops he has to jump through. He doesn't have to go, okay, now I'm going to get myself in trouble. He doesn't have to go do a membership class and get baptized at a local church. He doesn't have to go memorize a catechism. He doesn't have to join a club. He doesn't even have to go on a mission trip. He doesn't even have to validate his faith. He's about to die. This is it. This is it now. Before I get in trouble online, because we do podcasts still, the, 
I just want to be clear. Those things aren't bad things. Don't hear me saying that you don't do those things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is those things are not imperative for salvation. Evidently, all that it takes to be saved is to trust in Jesus. That's it. So we cling to the promise that if you've trusted in Jesus, you're saved. You believe that he is Lord, you're saved. This guy makes one confession. You are king, and my eternal salvation depends on you. That's it. He has said he's a sinner already. He's recognized that already. He has said, you are the king. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's what his confession is. This is belief. This is trusting in Christ. There's no work to be done. There's no way to earn this. He just says, remember me. And it's all on Jesus. He surrenders everything to him right there in that moment. And then we have another theological point to get at here in Jesus' response. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This flies in the face of what is called soul sleep. I know that most of you have not heard that term. Soul sleep is a theological term, meaning that you fall asleep. And then everybody wakes up at the same time when Jesus returns. And so there's like this period of soul sleeping. And I just want to tell you that's not in the Bible. It's not there. What we have in the Bible is a beautiful, vast, and incredible picture of heaven that there's an intermediate heaven. There's a permanent heaven that comes later. There's a, a consummation of heaven and earth. There's the, I mean, this is incredibly beautiful and incredibly complex. The pictures we have in the Bible are of martyrs standing before the throne, asking the Lord when he's going to come back. Tell me why, they, why they're asleep. They're not asleep. That's not, they're not waiting to be resurrected. They're waiting for Jesus to come back at the final second judgment, second coming of Christ. Like they're standing before the throne, pleading with him now. We have a picture in the scripture of the heavens, the heavenly throne room right now, being filled with the praise of God from angels and saints past who are praising the Lord right now, waiting for him to pick up his sword. We have this incredible picture. And then here in this passage, we have Jesus looking at a thief on the cross and saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me. He is going to paradise that day. This is not something to wait on. When your loved ones pass, they are with the Lord. They are with the Lord. When those who have trusted in Christ Jesus have died, they are with the Lord. They are with the Lord. We can rejoice in the truth that Jesus Christ saves. And it's not a waiting thing. You're not waiting to be saved. You get saved. You are His. You are His now. And when you die, you go to be with Him. And how beautiful and powerful that is.
Flip back to John chapter 19. Or flip forward to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27 is the next phrase that we see here. John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. Jesus is on the cross, and we've got uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary's, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, all at the cross. And there's a disciple whom Jesus loved hiding among the women. Now, this is, you need to understand, he's not a hero. He is hiding among the women. He's standing near the women, and he is probably in disguise. Covered his face or whatever. Um, Jesus is the only hero in the story. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So Jesus on the cross says, woman, behold your son. Remember, this is the way that John starts his interactions, Jesus' interactions with his mom. At the wedding, she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And she turns to the servants and goes, do whatever he tells you. Right? So this is, he is still responding to her with the same matronly affection that he had before. She is the matriarch of their family. She is, she is coming to him and she's standing before the cross and Jesus says, woman, mother, ma'am, lady, this is a very polite, instructive and kind term. This is woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Now, just a side note, Before this, in verse 24, even the pagans have fulfilled scripture here. It doesn't matter if one does not believe. God is still sovereign. And even the pagans fulfill the scripture. When they cast lots for his clothes and they don't tear his garments, they are fulfilling directly what the scripture says, even those who don't believe. So it doesn't matter if someone doesn't believe. God is still sovereign even over them. But he turns to this woman. He says, Mother... Or woman, here's your son. This is the same gentle, uh, loving concept. And then, then we've got to ask the question, why the disciple whom Jesus loved? Which you should know is John the Apostle. Why the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, there's, why not one of his other brothers, right? James or uh, Jude. Really, Jacob or Jude, right? Why not, why not one of them? They're, they're both around. They're both still alive. His brothers are alive. Why didn't Jesus give, him, give his mother to his brother? And I think the reason is found in John chapter 7. Even his brothers didn't believe. Even his brothers didn't believe. I don't think his brothers really came to understand until after this. I think, I think you see that. Now, just for a minute, let that both weigh on you a little bit. The fact that Jesus' own brothers didn't come to believe him until after everything. Let that weigh on you and let it bring you great encouragement. That even those who seem completely lost, because who else? I mean, there's no excuse for them not to believe. They grew up with him. They saw every little thing. Talk about the best Sunday school teacher. 
They had the best pastor, the best Sunday school teacher, the best church structure. They had the best example right in front of them and still didn't believe until after the resurrection. So we have something here, an application point for us. Sometimes spiritual family is of greater value than actual family. Sometimes spiritual family is of greater value and deeper importance than actual family. Jesus entrusts his mother not to his biological brothers, his half-brothers, but rather trusts him, trusts his mother to the spiritual son, John, the disciple whom he loved. Sometimes this is of more value than anything else. Yet we can take heart that his brother's James, whose name is actually Jacob, you can read, he wrote the book James, right? We named it James after King James when he did the Bible. Um, but Jacob, right? James. Um, and Jude, both brothers of Jesus, become believers and become leaders in the church. James becomes one of the greatest pastors in history. He's, he's the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he's... He's massive leader among the early church. So we have this great joy that there are those people who we long to see come to Christ, who we've been walking with for years, who we've been pleading with for years. And these two are that way. They've, they've had 33 years of pleading from Jesus to trust and know him. And they don't come until after after the resurrection. So we can take heart. We can take heart that it may take a long time sometimes, but we can take heart that even when it takes a long time, it still happens often that people come to know Jesus in Jesus' time, in God's time, in His economy. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 27. We're jumping back and forth here, but go to Matthew chapter 27. And you're going to see this next one, 27 verse 4. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, we have the same thing. Matthew uh, 27. Oh, I've got the wrong verse written down. I'm sorry, it's verse... Matthew 27... Verse 46, 4 to 46. I missed that one a lot. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. So this is after that three-hour period, right? This is towards the end, right towards the end. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of his bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a... An intriguing statement. It's a quote from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, but I want you to notice something here. 
Note, this is not father. He doesn't say my father, Abba. He doesn't say daddy. He doesn't say, he doesn't say father, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's because there's a legit separation that has happened at this point. Again, this is another theological point. Jesus is separated from the mercy and love of God at this point. The wrath of God has been poured out on him, and he is looking at God as judge and king and ruler over all things and saying, why have you forsaken me? The idea of forsaken being he turns his back away from him. He has forsaken him. He is no longer given mercy or grace or kindness. He's abandoned, crushed by the weight of God's wrath. It moves from intimate father to distant God. God has forsaken Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 21. That's what happens in this picture. God forsakes Jesus, turns his back, abandons Jesus, and pours out wrath on him. And Jesus suffers the wrath that you and I deserve. That eternal wrath poured out on Jesus in time. Jump back over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we have a very simple, short phrase in John 19, verse 28. John 19, verse 28. Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that it was all, that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Jesus was suddenly thirsty. Just think about the theological implications of that. The water of life, the wellspring of life, the one who is the river of life. He has claimed these things in the same gospel. In the gospel of John, he has already said, I am the water of life. I am the one who the well, anyone who trusts in me will have a well of life springing up from within him. Eternal water. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him to give you a drink and he would give you living water revelation he is the river of life by which we all get our thirst quenched come to me all you who are thirsty and i will give you living water that will never you will never thirst again that guy that king that lord thirsts he thirsts he thirsts and it shouldn't be too surprising. We know he had humanity. We know that at one point earlier in the book, he's like, I'm hungry. And he sits down. And he goes, go get me something to eat. We know that he gets tired. He goes, I'm tired. And he sits down by a well and some woman comes and he says, draw me some water. This is, this is not unheard of. And yet here on the cross, he's making both a practical statement of I'm actually thirsty and a deep, heavy theological statement that the well of life has experienced death. That the water of life has experienced death itself. He is thirsty. He is thirsty. Behold, I thirst. 
He has this need for the first time. And jump back over to Luke chapter four, chapter 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus calls out to God after this, after I thirst, he, knowing that it's finished, according to John, knowing that all of it's done, I thirst, he fills scripture, I thirst, they bring him the sponge, he drinks, or he takes it, I don't know, I don't know if he could drink and rub it on his face, I don't know what happens, but he, he takes it, and they, then he says this phrase, into your hands I commit my spirit, this is Psalm 31.5. It was a psalm that was taught to children. It was a psalm that was taught to children. Children would memorize it uh, early, early on. It was one of the early things. It's kind of like in uh, VBS, you know, you, you memorize John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you, you memorize that. You memorize a couple other scriptures in VBS when you're little, and, and those drill in your head so much so that we'll put them on signs at football games, right? Like, they are, they are inherent in it. This is one of those. This is one of those. Jesus has this memorized from a child. All Jewish boys and girls have this memorized as children. Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. This prayer is taught to children, and Christ exemplifies here what we would call true childlike faith. Christ exemplifies the faith we are to have here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is absolutely submissive to the Lord at all time. This is the evidence of persistent faith. And then final thing I think Jesus said back in John chapter 19. We sang it earlier. Tetelestai. One word. One profound and powerful word in John chapter 19, verse 30. He received his last. He received the wine, the sour wine. He said, it is finished. Relief and victory. It is done. The will of God is finished. All your sin in that moment, every sin, <coughs> past, present, and future, taken and balled up and thrown away. Past, present, future. It's important that you get that. It's important that you understand it's every sin. Not just some, not just the ones that are, that are really bad. Not just, not just the ones. He, he requires nothing of you except faith. All your sins are taken on the cross here. Past, present, and future. And my father-in-law loves to point this out, and I think he's right, that if you have trouble understanding that all your future sins are buried with Christ, remember that when he died, all of your sins were future sins. Every one of them were future sins. So yes, he can take all of them. He takes all your sins. It is finished. It is done. This word, to tetelestai, means complete 
absolute. It is finished. There's nothing left. It is done. God's will has been accomplished. Remember, this is not plan B. This is not, this is not a second thing. This isn't God didn't come down to earth and go, oh, we messed it up. I got to try something new. This is it. This was the beginning. This was the plan from the start. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush that of the snake. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. That's what happens here. This is all the way back at the beginning. This I would even go back further to the very second verse of the Bible. Darkness was over the face of the deep and there was nothing. There was nothing. It was formless and void. It was without substance and without reality. It required what? The Spirit of God to hover over the waters. It required the Spirit of God to hover over the waters. In the same way, Jesus Christ rescues us from unreality, bringing life and substance and reality out of nothing, out of sin and wickedness. He brings life and reality for us from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing lives apart from Him. This is God's plan from the start. Jesus says it is finished. It is done. And that's the confidence that we can have when we face the things in this world. When we face temptation, when we face death, when we face struggle, we can have the confidence that it is finished. He has conquered and he is victorious over all things. Scripture is fulfilled. The law of God is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. The law of God is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God, the scapegoat for our sins, the one who all our sins are laid on, the perfect atonement for us. He is done. The law has been fulfilled. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is filled perfectly in Jesus. It's fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. We trust Him for salvation. And finally, sin is completely and utterly destroyed. Sin is completely and utterly destroyed. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. Are they not all, he's talking about the angels. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? Or sorry, that's one. Sorry, chapter 2. Since therefore (laughs) children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus in the face of death saves people by his own death. In the face of our death, takes our death upon himself. That, he would have, that we would have life in Him, exchanging our death for His life. And we are given life everlasting. This is what it means when He says, it is finished. This is what it means, that it's completely done. There is nothing else for you to do. There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation. There is only the gift of God given freely in Jesus Christ. Only trust Him. The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb, slain before the end, before the beginning of the foundation of the earth. 
That Lamb of God, this has been God's plan all along and Jesus fulfills it. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in the preaching and teaching of your word. That you would delight in us here as we serve to show the world who you are. That everyone would rejoice in the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. 